0: You ever find yourself late at night wondering how generations of the past could get through things like wars and famines with such a strong sense of resolve while you yourself drown in an ocean of doubt and you're living in comparative luxury well stick around eh the frequency of the enemy patrol podcast, Please stand by for new directions, over. Hey there, I'm the Anomic Ranger, your reality scout. Have a seat by the fire, help yourself to a coffee. Today we're going to discuss the resolve of the greatest generation. I'm going to tell some true stories. Then we're going to ask, just like Pilate asked of Jesus, what is truth? Just a quick reminder the enemy patrol is here to help you as an individual fight against the personal alienation and uncertainty resulting from a societal breakdown of standards and values. You can go back and listen to my episodes one and two to get a little bit more of that. And yes, I am your reality scout. I provide information. You are the general in the campaign of life. In the end, it's up to you to decide how to live your adventure. I've broken down this in what I'm calling season one into three parts. The veneration of the normal man, the lie of the day, and some practical steps to get through some things. So anyway, onward to the veneration of the normal man. Today we're going to be talking about the greatest generation. Now this comes from a book written by a journalist. I think his name was Tom Brokaw. I never read the book, but the title of the book was The Greatest Generation. He's the one that gave them that, that title. Now, when you're talking about generations and generational talk, you have to remember that there's a lot of blurred lines and a lot of generalities. Um, the generations tend to, you know, bleed into one another in both directions. So it's not a, a finite thing but it's useful in understanding change. Now, what I'm going to be talking about today is about my grandparents. That's why I said I'm going to be telling some true stories. These are stories that I heard. And interestingly enough, being that the greatest generation was known for World War II, I don't have any war stories. My Well, I had a few great-uncles that, that fought in the war. They never really talked about it, and so I never heard much about it. My... Grandparents that I had direct contact with um, couldn't get into the war for different reasons, health reasons and um, too old and things like that. So, yeah. But what got me started on this, t- thinking about The Greatest Generation, was a meme I saw on the internet. and You've probably seen it. It was a, a meme. It was two pictures broken into two parts. And in, in the one picture was... The young men of World War II, they would be in the late teens, early 20s, jumping off the boat onto Normandy Beach during that invasion. And the horror that it was, that most people know that story. If you don't know it, you should go back and read it. And it was juxtaposed with the youth of the same age today in colleges trying to find a safe space so they could have puppies and and crayons and because they heard a bad word. So it was interesting the the um, difference between those two pictures. That's what got me thinking about this. So I wanted to talk about the Greatest Generation and kind of study them and give you some stories that I heard firsthand. So the Greatest Generation was born roughly between nineteen ten and nineteen twenty four. They were young people during, or even children during the Great Depression. And they were the young adults that fought in World War II. Now, before I can talk about this generation, lest you think that it's just about, you know, that's the way things went and that's the way things were in the olden days, you have to remember that there's actually the generation before them, their parents went through some things and lived through some things that uh, one must understand. The generation before them they were the ones born between 1880 and 1915, roughly, were given the title The Lost Generation. And it's kind of interesting, their story, because it's a little bit similar to some of the changes that we've seen in our society. Now, I think The Lost Generation had more changes than, than, say, the millennial generation. They talk about, you know, the rise of the internet and, and the connectivity of, of the world and communications and everything is this giant change. But I think the world changed more between 1880 and 1915 than we can even imagine. I mean, think about it. The technolog- technological changes. Um, you're looking at going between coal oil for light or candles to electric lights, um, you're going from horse-drawn carriages to automobiles. It was the age when flight, which people had talked about for hundreds of years, the possibility of it actually started to happen, and it was actually looking like it might actually work. And then there was great political changes. You had the rise and the thought and the, and the seeds of communism, and the idea of, of um, different forms of government based on voting, based on laws, based on different things than monarchies, which had, monarchies had ruled the world for hundreds of years. You also had great social changes. I mean, think about it. Uh, the lost generation was born in 1880. The Civil War in the United States fought over slavery ended in 1865. So we're talking that this generation, this was still fairly fresh in many of their minds. We also had things like women's suffrage, women got the right to vote. So there was great social changes happening at the same time. So if you combine all these things and you look at all these things happening, you can see that there was a lot of hope, there was a lot of belief that oh the world was changing so fast and technology and social changes and political changes that everybody believed that the world was just going to get better and better and better and there was during this time there was much belief that oh science would solve everything and 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 social ideas would solve everything and just everything was going to get solved and a lot of old beliefs were kind of being poo-pooed, and they believed everything was going to get better. <clears throat> and then in 1914, when World War I broke out, it shocked everybody. The idea that the entire world, basically, so many countries could come together and fight. Well, at first they thought, well, it, it just can't last, because, I mean, you get that much you know, uh, destruction in one place. And just people will just stand back and go, "No, nobody's going to do this." Nobody had any concept of the idea of an industrial war. These new machines and these new technologies, things like gas and and heavy artillery, um, all these different things coming together, and it's it's it's, it's like they couldn't understand how many people were going to die when you just threw them into this meat grinder called World War One, Everybody thought that bravery and heart would just win the day in this, and it didn't. It just ground everybody up. If you want to listen to something that, well, until I listened to it, I never even really understood the horror that World War One was. Um, Dan Carlin's, uh, in his Hardcore History podcast, uh, it's called, I think, Blueprint for Armageddon, and it's it's a long it it takes a lot of listening but i was i was in awe of it that was it was amazing i had no idea of that of what that was like anyway so in this carnage hope died in 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 the bloodshed and the, the destruction of an industrial war that modernism had brought about anyway after the war was over the 1920s showed up and well, they called it the Roaring Twenties. Suddenly, there was everybody was was trying to gain back this hope, or at least getting lost in hedonism, and that was brought about to a sudden horrible crash in 1929 when the entire world economy just fell apart. And I mean, we have we have um, recessions, but this depression was nothing like the 1929 crash and the dirty thirties. So the greatest generation grew up during this time. So they had parents that, well, had kind of believed and had much hope, but they were maybe a little bit more cynical than, than even their kids were. Their kids grew up during the great depression and they had to deal with things like there was another world war looming. I mean, everybody saw it coming. It was almost like the tail end of world war one, really like they hadn't resolved it somehow. And then another thing that I have to mention, because in this day and age, anytime we get a snowstorm or the wind picks up or somebody gets a little bit cold or too hot, we start talking about, oh my goodness, the world is ending because of global warming or political catastrophe or climate change or whatever the word of the day is for the fact that the weather changes. Well, these... Young people went through the Dust Bowl, what they called the Dust Bowl, in the middle of the country, where it was so dry and it never rained. And due to the farming methods at the time, the wind would pick up and it would just lift all the soil out of the fields. That's why they called it the Dust Bowl, and it the soil drifted for hundreds of miles, and it wiped out farms. People had to leave the middle of the country and find other places. I mean, it was a it was. It was a a weather catastrophe. And I don't think it had to do with the fact of the automobile or people were burning coal. Anyway, we won't get into the whole carbon stuff. And you had a lot of messed up world politics this time. I mean, you still had some monarchies that were trying to hang on and you had... Um, different governments rising up, and you had the middle of the country devastated by world, or middle of Europe devastated by World War One, and everybody was drawing and redrawing the map and trying to figure things out. So during this time, one has to ask themselves, or the greatest generation, what did their parents provide them to give them the resolve that they had? It probably wasn't material goods, because the Great Depression, that was... I mean, there was, women were sewing girls' dresses out of flower sacks, and it was tough to f- put a meal together. Finding a job was almost impossible. Nobody had any money. So I'm going to tell these stories, and then you can decide. What did their parents provide them? What did they give them to help them get through some of this stuff? <laughs> My grandfather grew up on a farm in northern Alberta. Uh, he well, we called him Papa. He was my mother's father, and he had kind of an interesting story. His father and mother and oh, I forget how many siblings he had now, but anyway, started this homestead, and his mother died when he was about nine years old. And his dad completely lost heart for working the farm. Now, I have to give you some background on this so you understand what farming was like or homesteading was like. The, this part of the world, is, it's known as the boreal Forest. And the best way that I could describe it is, so that you can understand, is jungle. It's thick bush. We call it bush in this part of the world. There's some heavy timber, but even the heavy timber has a lot of brush around it. But it's jungle that is frozen solid and under several feet of snow for about six months out of the year. So the actual farming that you can do is only in the summer. And to chop a farm out of this bush was hard work. You took a team, you took your axe. First you chopped down the trees and you hauled the trees out. You took what trees you could to build what you needed to build, your house, your corrals, your barns, whatever. The rest of the trees had to be piled up and burnt. Then you were left with the brush and the stumps. Well, the brush had to be chopped down with the axe and piled up and burnt. And the stumps, well, you got your grub hoe and your axe and your shovel and you dug around the stumps and you chopped the roots. Then you hooked the team onto it and you ripped, the stumps out, then those had to be piled and burned. Then, depending on the size of your team, maybe you had to bore another team, you'd have gone to those stumps and you'd rip them out and pile them up and burn them. Then you would have to use your team to hook up a plow and you would have to plow the land, turn it over. Then you'd be left with all the roots that were left in the ground. And you would have to pick those and pile those and burn them. Then you could start farming. And during this time, you would also have to be building a house and building your kraals and looking after your animals. So anyway, you get the point. When his dad died, my grandpa, he basically took over the farm because his dad lost heart. And he was 14 at the time. And I don't know about you, but I remember when I was 14, I look at 14-year-olds today, the amount of responsibility that they want to take on is pretty limited and how much responsibility anybody would want to give them is even more limited. But he took it on at 14 years old. After a few years, and I'm not sure how old he was at this time, my papa decided, I'm thinking he was probably a younger man, maybe feeling his oats a little bit, and he decided that the farm, well, he wanted to see something else. He decided to see the city. So this is in the middle of of the 1930s during the Depression. So he hopped a train, and he headed to the big city, which in the part of the world he was in, the big city was Edmonton, Alberta, it uh, probably wasn't very big at the time, but hey, it was the bright lights, as far as he was concerned. So he hopped a freight car and he rode into the city, and he told stories about some of the things that he'd seen, the hobo camps, and and the men just basically camping and looking for any work that they could find, or a free meal, or whatever. And he told about, you know, you had to keep your, any, if you had anything that was of any value, even a nickel, you had to keep it hidden. I think he actually said even an egg, you didn't even tell anybody if you were able to get an egg, you didn't even tell anybody about that, or you might get it taken away from you, or beat up, or rolled, or whatever. And he told another story about how one night he was cold, and he'd heard about this guy. He was a rich guy in Edmonton, and he owned a big house on the Saskatchewan River and he was going to lose the house because he was losing everything so in the meantime before the bank could kick him out of the house he was renting the house out and you could get a basically a pallet in the corner for I don't know I can't remember if it was two cents or a nickel or something like that and uh, so he went there because he wanted a good night's sleep and and he talked about this house was full of these men and hobos I guess men looking for work and they were well some were drying their clothes and some were heating up a can of beans and some were chopping up the furniture and he said it was beautiful furniture this beautiful oak furniture they were chopping it up and throwing it in the fireplace to uh, get enough heat to dry their clothes and keep warm so they could sleep so after all this he decided that maybe going back to the farm wasn't so bad he said at least there i could you know find wood to burn and i could grow some potatoes and i could shoot a moose and i could survive so he hopped the freight and went back to the farm he farmed for a few more years and this was near the end of the 30s he decided that he needed some money because even in those days he needed some money to run a farm so you would uh, find a job, any job, and he heard about a job in a logging camp to the west of his farm. So I think this time he actually paid money to get on the train, and he rode the train further west. Uh, Stopped in this town, he got a ride on on a wagon out to this logging camp. And he worked there all winter, and he lodged with the logging company and Well, he had to buy everything from the logging company. So he had to buy better clothes. Working out in the bush in the winter in Canada, you needed a good coat and a good hat and lots of mitts and gloves because you wore them out at a fast rate and good boots. So you had to buy everything from the company store. You had to pay your room and board. And they just took that off your wages. So he worked all winter and he said, when he came come out of there, he said, I had a good coat, I had good boots, I had a couple pairs of good gloves, I had a good hat, and I had 15 cents. That's what he was left with after a winter of working. Now, my great-grandpa, he was older, but he told me the story of when he came from southern Alberta, which was really dry. I mean, it was part of the, well, part of the world that uh, I guess the Dust Bowl was in, although I don't think it was as bad as it was in the United States. But it was dry, and, well, there was other problems with the farm. There was fights with family over who was going to farm it and things like that. But, so he had to move his family. He had a wife and five kids, I think, at the time. And he left the farm. He had a hay wagon and a team and some tools. And he converted this hay wagon as kind of a, a camper, I guess you'd call it. Put a tarp over it. And they had no food. So he went down to the creek and the suckers were running. And sucker fish are, I don't know what you'd compare them to. They're bottom feeders. And they run in the creeks in the, in the spring and in great numbers. So he got a net and some barrels. And he started netting and, and cleaning these suckers and, and packing the meat in these barrels. Now, I'm not sure if he pickled them or salted them. He probably salted them. He never really mentioned that. He just put this fish meat in these barrels. Put it on the wagon, and they traveled north to where he could homestead a piece of land. I guess I should explain that, this homestead idea. Maybe some people don't know about that. During that time in Canada, in, in that part of the world, you could homestead a piece of land. And what it was, you went to the government And you paid a small fee, and they gave you 160 acres of this bushland. And you had to, you had so many years to improve it, what they called putting improvements on it, which means you had to clear so many acres, you had to build a house, et cetera, et cetera. And so he heard you could get a piece of land up north for a small amount of money, so that's where he headed, a 300-mile journey with kids and wife and a couple barrels of fish. There was another story that they told. It was a neighbor to my papa, and he came into the country to homestead a piece of land, and nobody thought he would make it because he came in really late in the year, like during this time, because the land is frozen and under snow for that six or seven months out of the year, you had to get on your land first thing in the spring, as soon as you could start chopping down trees, and you worked brutally for all summer and hopefully you were set up enough that you could get through your first winter. But he came come in late and everybody thought he was a little bit crazy. But what he did is he, on his land, he had a creek and the creek had a quite a steep bank on it. So he dug, I guess the only thing he'd call it is a cave in, in the side of the creek bank. Big enough for him and his team of horses. And he built kind of a shack thing out front, probably someplace where he could put a stove and a tin stove and build a fire in it. And he lived there over the winter. Now it's hard to understand how hard that would be, but you have to realize that one of the reasons that you can farm in this part of the world and do good at it is because during the summer you have so much daylight. It starts getting dark or starts getting light at like four o'clock in the morning. And it doesn't get dark till eleven thirty at night at the height of summer, but the winter is the flip side of this. It gets dark at three thirty and starts getting dark at three thirty in the afternoon. It doesn't get light till nine thirty the next morning and it's cold minus thirty minus forty sometimes for weeks at a time, no let up on on the weather so long cold and dark he lived in this cave with his team. And he was out in the spring and given her. So just think about this. Think about the mindset from the stories that I've told. Think about where your head has to be at to, in order to do this, you have to really believe in what you're doing. You have to have a certain way of thinking to get through this. And I, this type of thinking is Uh, very hard to find in this day and age. So I'm going to talk about some of the, the uh, attributes, I guess, of this generation. I'm not going to talk about the faults because I mean, there is, they they did have their faults, but I want to talk about the attributes because they got through life like this. So maybe in a future podcast, maybe I'll talk about some of the things that maybe they're thinking was wrong, but, For the time being, it's just the attributes. So what are the attributes of these people, of this generation? Well, the first thing I think anybody can see is they had a work ethic. They were responsible. Then when they took something on, they took it on. It was a roll-up-your-sleeves, can-do attitude. It was a do-what's-in-front-of-you type thing. Don't think too far ahead. Plan, but what's in front of you, get it done can do, and when you did something you had a pride in the job that you did it didn't matter how small it was it didn't matter if you did a perfect job, just pride in the fact that you worked and did your best and got it done. The foibles in others were often overlooked it as long as the work got done that was their belief like. Somebody could be a little bit off, but hey, as long as they were a hard worker and they got things done, then they were accepted. I'll tell you a story about that it, to give you an example. Years later, and me as a small child hanging around with my papa and my uncle, um, I heard that they there was a guy that was going to be blowing stumps on a new piece of land that they'd bought. My uncle and my and my papa had bought a new quarter, and they had logged it off and sold the timber to a, a sawmill. But they were left with all these stumps. Now we're well beyond pulling them out with with a, a team of horses or two teams of horses, but the 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 cats or the the um, dozers of even when I was a kid, were not as powerful or not as good as the dozers that they have today. So one of the, often what they would do is they would use dynamite, what's called stumping powder. And you'd put it under the stump and blow the stump out. And but it was it was hard work and it was slow. So often if there was somebody that was good at it, you could hire somebody who would go out and blow all your stumps. Anyway, there was this guy, and I think he was around, I can't remember his name, but I think he was around the same age as as my papa. Uh, He was a bachelor, lived in the country, and so they hired him to go out and blow these stumps. Now, I heard about this, and I really wanted to go see it. I mean, I watched enough, you know, coyote, roadrunner hour stuff that I wanted to see dynamite in action. So we went out there, went up on this ridge. We were watching him down below, and he had two stumps, ready to go and what you did is you took a crowbar and you you poked a hole beat a hole down under the stump at an angle and then you stuffed in a stick of this stumping powder and trailed the fuse out through the hole and then you tamped in dirt in the hole and lit the fuse and got away so we got there and he had two stumps prepared and so he lit the first one and took off and went behind his truck and Kaboom! The dirt flew and the stump rolled out. And oh, I was amazed. It was it was pretty awesome. Then uh, the next one, he went over and he lit it and did the same thing, and the smoke trailed away, and then nothing happened. And nothing happened. Now I, I was pretty young. I don't remember how long he waited, but I know he didn't wait long enough because my uncle started saying words under his breath that a child shouldn't hear. And I remember my papa spoke up and said, yeah, he's a crazy SOB, but he sure can blow stumps. Another thing in all this is whatever they did, they accepted the consequences of their own actions. That's why I talked about. They were very responsible. If they messed up, it's like, yeah, I messed up, and you move on. Another thing they had was Perseverance. They plowed through their problems. If they had a problem, they worked through it. They didn't mess around with too much chest beating over anything. They just worked through problems. They didn't expect perfection, but they worked their way through things. Another thing is policy, in persever- talking about perseverance, the policy didn't matter. It didn't matter what the policy was, nobody cared. The question was, does it work? Does it work? Okay, then let's do it this way. They had no time for the blame game. To find fault. Like, whose fault? If something doesn't work, well, they didn't sit around worrying about who's to blame that it didn't work. They just found another way to make it work. Go back up through what I said. Roll up your sleeves. Can-do attitude. Don't expect perfection. Make it happen. Another thing they had was they had a strong belief system. They had a very powerful personal identity. They believed in themselves. They believed that what they were doing was the right thing and they were just going to go ahead and do it. They might have viewed human nature with some suspicion. I mean, they looked at other people as like a little bit of suspicion about society and a little bit of suspicion about, but they didn't spend a lot of time with it. They were optimistic about being able to work through problems. Oh, they were definitely people that could speak their mind. They were not subtle. If you were an idiot, you'd probably get told to your face, you're an idiot. They also had a faith in God. Even if they didn't hold to the precepts of a religion, even if they didn't totally you know, go to church and do the whole thing, And they might even have snickered at people, at some of them that went to church. But in the back of their mind, a belief in God, a belief in rightness and wrongness was very strong. They had a sense of hope, they had a sense of purpose, and they had a collective greatness about them. They were the ones that built the schools, built the hospitals. They believed in what society could do. And when I talk about build the hospitals and build the schools, they they didn't wait for the government to sit and build them. The community got together. Somebody donated a piece of land. They got together and put up a schoolhouse. Then they got together and hired a teacher and brought the teacher in so the kids could get an education. Now, that is a community working together as a collective, Same thing with the hospitals, the same idea. The community got together, they raised money, they held dances, they did whatever it took. I mean, yes, they're always, I mean, it was the government at this time was getting more involved and they were getting, you know, grants and stuff from the government. But it definitely was a community effort if they wanted to build a school or a hospital or something like that. They had a very simplistic view of life. There was not a lot of navel-gazing going on. Nobody worried about the psychology of things or some esoteric sense of right or wrong. Does it work? Then just, let's do it. And another thing that they had that is really missing from today is they had gratitude. They had gratitude for what they had. They had went through some horrendous times. They had went through a depression where they barely could pull enough together to eat and find clothes and find shelter. So whenever they had something, they had a lot of gratitude for it. These are some of the things that that this generation had that got them through this. And there may be some of the things that we should maybe try and emulate, work on ourselves, and try and gain that attitude that they had. That being said, it's time to segue and go into the lie of the day. And as we go through the lie of the day, think about how this lie, I call it the big lie, how this lie would undermine all of the things that I have just talked about with this generation, the greatest generation. How this big lie would come in and steal some of that resolve and some of that can-do work ethic. Just think about that. And what is the big lie? The big lie is there is no such thing as absolute truth. (laughs) ¶¶ Call it the big lie. Maybe it should have been first. Maybe in doing this, I'm already in episode three. Maybe I should have done it in episode one to lay the groundwork. But anyway, whatever. The lie. There's no such thing as absolute truth. The belief that there all truth is subjective rather than objective. Does that confuse you? The words, I know, it's, hard, it's easy to get lost. Just go start reading philosophy and you'll get lost, especially in the latter-day philosophers. Of what those two things mean, the difference between objective truth and subjective truth. Well, I'll give it to you really simple. I'll give you some rustic reasonings. Objective truth? Well, in its simplest form... Gravity is definitely an objective truth. You can go to the top of a tall building and you can stand there and you can say, I believe I can fly. I really believe I can fly. I know I can fly. I can fly and jump off. You'll fly for however long it takes you until you hit the ground. That's objective truth. The truth is gravity is going to pull you down unless you have some device to float you. But if you just jump off, gravity is going to make you hit the ground. Subjective truth? Well, the best example I've ever heard of subjective truth was, well, he was supposedly the hero in a movie. I think it was called The Great Lebowski. The dude? And this is his quote. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like your opinion, man. There you go. That's subjective truth in a nutshell. And that is what the modern world is pushing these days, very subtly. Now, most people, you pin them down, especially if you use like the gravity thing, they'd say, well, of course. But subtly, in everything out there, whether it's, whether it's what you're taught in university and, and some of the things in government schools, and you're talking about the media, and you're talking about this, this idea that, well, there is no real truth. They, basically four rules to what they're teaching. Number one, truth is the same as opinion. All truth is manufactured by consensus or culture or whatever thing. The idea that truth is manufactured. Number two, truth is equal to feelings. In other words, when two people are in disagreement, well, each can have their truth. And I have heard this. I've, I've heard people say it. I've heard people say it to me. Well, that's your truth but this is my truth. Well, either they don't understand the concept or they're just ruining the word truth for any talk at all. Truth does not equal feelings. Anyway, number three, truth is evolving. Remember in episode two, I talked about the lies in evolution. Well, this is another one, that somehow truth just changes over time. It's like, yeah, well, that was in the olden days, they had their truth. And today we have our truth. Now, I'm not saying that truth can't be discovered over time. I mean, that's obvious. You know, thousands of years ago, men believed that the earth was flat. And now we know that the earth is round. I mean, obviously. The thing was, the earth wasn't flat thousands of years ago. Thousands of years ago, the earth was round. That's the truth. Number four, truth is simple. Now, this one's a little bit subtle, but like I said before, I mean, if you start talking about gravity, oh yeah, well, that's a simple truth. Of course that one's true. But uh, well, if it gets complicated, well then, you know, see rules one, two, and three. Truth is opinion. Truth is feelings. Truth is evolving. So, This subtly is what's being put out there to subvert even the concept of truth. Now, why are people doing this? Well, simply people don't like the truth. People want to bend the truth to fit their own desires. People want their feelings to match reality. Reality is truth. So when reality sucks, well, they want to just change it and make their feelings more match truth, and they think that they're going to change reality. It doesn't work that way. Another thing is truth takes work to find. You have to put effort into it. You don't just like flippantly just, yeah, oh, I'm going to take this. No, you got to put work into it. And The last one is truth is often painful. It's hard to accept the truth, especially about ourselves. I mean, when you get an inkling, an idea in your head about yourself and you suddenly realize it's true, it's really hard to swallow that. Um, so what are the results of this? Well, communication begins to break down between people because without a knowable truth, talking is just air going off, to, off, off of vocal cords and then it goes out into the air into the atmosphere in sound waves and it bounces off somebody's ears. It doesn't mean anything unless there is a common truth, unless there is the truth. Um, Cultures coming together is impossible without, without truth. If each culture has its own truth, well, well, then you can never really come together. learning itself becomes meaningless because truth is always changing according to these people, then what's the point of learning anything? If, if truth is cultural and, and there is no noble truth, then what's the point of learning anything? If truth is evolving, well, you'll learn something now and tomorrow, well, it'll all be different. Another result is, you come down to mob rule, consensus becomes truth. The consensus of people becomes almost like a god. Well, you know, everybody thinks this way, so therefore it must be right. So that's that's mob rules. Another result is, reality, which is truth, begins to break down. That leads to nihilism and madness. I mean, if reality itself, if you can't even trust reality itself, then what's the point? So what is truth? Well, I'll just go through some things quickly here about what truth is. Truth is external from your mind. It's outside of you. It's not something that happens in your head. You can know it in your head. But truth itself is outside of your person. The truth is knowable. It's the old, seek and ye shall find. Truth is the foundation of reality, which, what I mentioned before, truth is built on bedrock, not sand. It doesn't change. Truth is eternal. Truth will be the same after you're dead, just as the same as it was before you were born. The truth is powerful. It is stronger than any lie that has ever been contrived. Lies Even in your own life, think about this. If you tell a lie, you've got to tell three more to prop it up. Lies, falsehoods need constant propping up. Truth brings peace. Just knowing it's there. Just knowing it's real. Just knowing that you can find it. Brings a peace on your person. Truth is discovered. Falsehoods are manufactured. Lies are manufactured in people's heads. They're manufactured in papers and books and whatever else. But truth is discovered. It's, when you discover the truth, it's it's like, it's like sweeping the sand off of an ancient city and, and uncovering it, you know, square by square. Truth is transcultural. It's the same in the world over. Two plus two equals four is the same in Africa, is the same in South America, it's the same in Europe. Truth is apart from your attitude. Feelings don't matter. Truth is, it doesn't matter about your feelings. So you have to change your attitude. You can't bend reality to fit your feelings or your attitude. Truth is apart from consensus. You could be one in a million person. Your opinion against a million other opinions. And you could be right. Truth takes... Effort to find. So don't get cocky. Don't, and and this is, I'm especially speaking to the younger people. Don't get excited if you get one little piece of the truth. Remember the story about the the blind men that find the elephant? One thinks it's like a tree, another thinks it's like a snake. Because they are each feeling a different part of the elephant. So take your time, put some effort into it. Be careful of part truths. But believe that eventually you can discover the entire elephant and know exactly what it looks like. Another thing I'll tell you is if you believe in and you seek the truth, you're going to be mocked, you're going to be attacked, you're going to be ridiculed, you're going to be patronized. It's just going to happen because so many people out there do not even want to think that there is an absolute truth out there. So, you're going to become, if you seek the truth, you're going to become discouraged, you're going to become tired, and you're often going to be alone. But stay the course. In the end, you will know the truth. And after all of this, if you still have doubts, if you still don't believe in an absolute truth, if you've taken courses in universities and you're a great philosopher, and you say, no, there is no such thing as an absolute truth, and you have a thousand reasons why there's no such thing as an absolute truth, I just have one question to ask you. Are you absolutely sure about that? This is the time in the podcast where I talk about some practical steps and I think in the future I'm going to expand this section a little bit but for now I'm just kind of throwing out a few teasers and these teasers I, I want you to work at it a little bit. The big thing is I started in episodes 1 and 2 I talked about um, shutting off your devices giving yourself a break from this social world especially the younger people have themselves caught up in like shut it off for a few hours a day or one day a week or both would be even better. And the other thing I talked about is get out for a walk every day. Just, just put a, put a half a mile on just walking and looking around. You can stick your phone in your pocket, just shut it off. And finding naturally peaceful places. Are you, are you finding any? Find a, a creek or a park or something where there's trees and grass. So there's your exercise and your peace. And I think the last time I mentioned, start lifting some heavy things, work your muscles a little bit. I don't care if it's weights or you go to the gym or you just find a cement block to go pick up and move around. Just something, work those muscles, get the blood flowing. Are you planning any longer nature jobs? I really would encourage you to do that. If you can get yourself out somewhere, go camping or go visit a farm or, or do something like that. It doesn't have to be expensive. You don't have to put a whole bunch into it, but just get out somewhere away from the city. Get away from the lights where you can look up at the stars and see the sky and hear the wind moving through trees and realize that that's the real world. That this television, movie, phone, device, computer world is so artificial. You've got to get out of it. Just give yourself a break from it. So here's a new one. Here's a, a small little exercise you can do. I mean, I was talking before about the greatest generation and their, and their gratitude. So get yourself a pen and paper and list all of the things, big and small, things in your life that you're grateful for. Make it, make it a long list. Don't, don't just go at it half-heartedly. Write down everything, even small things. And here, I'll give it a little twist for you. Shut off all the lights where you live. Do this at night when it's dark. Shut off all the lights. And light one candle. And write your list by candlelight. See what that's like. And I know one thing, at the very least... You can be grateful then for electric lights. So yeah, you can find me at AnomicRanger.com if you want to go and take a look at my website. Um, If you want to send me a dispatch through the email system, you can find me at AnimePatrolHQ at Yahoo.com and my website is AnomicRanger.com And don't forget when you're done here to subscribe give me a good review give me some likes whatever I'm I'm not big on the on the whole social media thing but I would like some good reviews why not and don't forget until we meet again keep an edge in your knife and your matches dry cause life is a one time adventure learn to live it that way vea con eh